This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast. The Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Online, on DAB, and on the talk radio app. Talk Radio. Let's turn our attention to what's happening here and, uh, well, uh, making sure that we've got uh, people who are able to, uh, well, focus on getting a job in the 21st century economy and the post-coronavirus economy. And the Prime Minister today giving a big speech, setting out plans to transform, he says, training and skills in this country to uh, help the country build back better and boost productivity. Well, let's talk about this all with the Apprenticeships and Skills Minister, Gillian Keegan. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, well, there's going to be an awful lot of focus on this, isn't there? When in a few months' time we see uh, all those people who are on furlough uh, and those working in the uh, uh, hospitality industry and aviation industry, those jobs just start to go. Uh, huge numbers of people on the dole queues. What sort of education and training and skills are we going to be uh, rolling out that can help those people find new work? Well, there's a whole load of uh, things that we rolled out. So we've already announced the, the plan for jobs, which is really focused on youth unemployment. What we're announcing today is really focused on adult skills. Um, and there's a, you know, I, I often say that before the first month I had this job, um, which, you know, was before coronavirus, we had full almost uh, employment, hardly anybody unemployed. And every day in every sector, I was hearing about massive skills shortages. And that's everything from health and social care, teaching, policing, construction, engineering, anything to do with digital, anything to do with data, um, lots and lots of um, different careers. And we, we do have these skill shortages still. So what we're trying to do is to make sure that we have a much broader offer, much more flexible, um, much more modular that people can engage with. Um, and, you know, in those areas that uh, will enable them to get fabulous careers in those in those sectors where there are shortages. And there's, um, so, there has been a lot of talk, isn't there, about, you know, you can't, uh, you know, preserve the, the economy in Aspic and a lot of the jobs which are going to be lost are going to be lost forever. People are going to be working from home, a lot of those service industry jobs, they're just going to change. Retail industry is going to change an awful lot from the high street to online, etc. 
etc. Um, the question is, is whether the, the alternative jobs that are going to be available are going to be higher skilled jobs or higher paid jobs. How hopeful are we that we can transform our economy? I mean, there, there is a point where we can use, with the, you know, if we put our minds to it, our shoulders to the, the grindstone, that we can use this horrific experience of the pandemic and the economic problems as an opportunity to you know, remake our economy and to, to change and diversify and, and, and get into better, higher skilled jobs. But, but how, how does that happen? Is that something that government can lead? Well, I mean, that's part of what we're announcing today to make it much simpler for that to happen. As you say, this has been something that has been... Dis- oh, our line seems to have uh, frozen. Um, I can see Gillian. Oh, I think, have we got you back, Gillian? Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Oh, yes, I tell you what we need. We, we need to we need to train up some people who are better at IT. That's what we need to do. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and to be honest, we didn't realise it was video, so <laughs> no, we've now got fingers you're, all over. You're it. coping very well, and we can see someone's finger. Tell, tell <laughs> yeah, the person to get their finger off the screen. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> but you're doing you very well. I, I think I need uh, to get the, the right digital skills. Um, no, obviously, uh, you know, this is something that we've seen coming for, for a while. There's been talk about this, the skills gaps, about, um, you know, the, the changing needs of our economy, etc. But what's happened with coronavirus is it has massively accelerated some aspects of that, uh, particularly with the shift to online, and as you say, the future of work and people changing perhaps the operating models of how they work. So what we are announcing today is very much with that in mind to make sure that everybody has the access, no matter where they are, what point what point they are in their career, that they can get access to training, they can get access to, to upskilling. So we've already done a number of things over the summer. We launched the, the Skills Toolkit, which is um, you know there to help people with basic digital and right up to coding uh, courses, all of which are free. We're announcing a massive increase in that today. Then we've got uh, digital boot camps, and then we've got this entitlement for all adults to be able to do uh, level uh, three, which is basically a level equivalent in a whole host of uh, high value areas that match the the, the kind of skills gaps yeah. that we have. And that they could differ on uh, a local and national level, but really focused on uh, closing those skills gaps and giving people that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, we do know, don't we, that youth unemployment is is, is the one that's really uh, flying. Um, the young people are the people who are least likely to have job security, you know, last in the door, first out the door, uh, and also more likely to work in those sort of uh, retail and hospitality jobs which have gone first. Um, the question is, is whether, yeah, whether we are going to have the jobs in the future. Let's talk about what's going on at universities at the moment. Uh, we're now looking at people saying they want to, you know, refunds for uh, their university degrees for the fees, uh, which they've taken massive loans out for, indeed for their accommodation, people being basically imprisoned uh, in some university campuses. We've had uh, pictures of of fire exits being chained, locked. I mean, locked. I mean, God, someone someone needs to be sacked on the spot for that. Um, and um, and we've also got this, still this question mark about whether young people can come back. Oh, sorry, goodness knows what's going on there. And also, I'm seeing a feed from another radio station, I think. Uh, but also this idea that the university students won't be allowed to go back to mum and dad at Christmas. Can you guarantee for us and confirm for us that the university students will be at home with mum and dad if they want to be on Christmas Day? Well, we fully expect that uh, students will be able to go home for Christmas. That's and not a and guarantee. That's... Well, the Secretary of State is going to set out um, his set out that the statement later, just just basically saying how that will be achieved. But 
it, you know, we, we will work to make sure that happens. I think that's 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 the clearest thing. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you know, it's very difficult. This this group of students have really had uh, a tough time. You know, they missed out on the end of their schooling. They missed out on their exams, all the summer activities, you know, their, their, their leaving parties, uh, their freshers week. They really have been massively impacted by coronavirus, um, you know, and now in, in, in the small number of cases, obviously, they are um, isolating or self-isolating. But that's just the same as everybody across the country. So we're living with the virus right now. If you are infected with coronavirus or you have been close by somebody, obviously, the app will ping or somebody will call you and you have to self-isolate. That is uh, that's what we're living well, with right was it, now. That's, was it the right decision to send uh, youngsters back to university or should it have all gone online this term? Well, I think that, you know some universities did go fully online, but the vast majority wanted to give that full experience to uh, to the, the young people. And it is part of the experience. I mean, they are doing face-to-face -face classes as well. It's a blended mix. But, I, I, you know, if, we, if we'd have stopped everybody from going un to university and kept their lives on hold, and I think there probably would have been uh, a great uproar about that. The reality is that the university have made a massive, um, you know, they, they've really tried hard to make universities COVID safe. What we now need is to make sure that uh, everybody understands that in terms of socialising, they have to be careful about how they socialise. And that's going to, and that's the same for everybody across the country. You know, we really do need to uh, minimise our social contact and make sure we keep that distance and wash our hands thoroughly. What, what do you make of the fight back in the House of Commons just finally? Uh, MPs calling the government, you know, Big Brother Orwellian, uh, Oliver Cromwell cancelling Christmas, ruling by decree. Do you think that Parliament should get to have a say when we bring in draconian rules as part of the government? There is no doubt if a year ago somebody had told us what we're living through right now and the rules that we're under, nobody, none of us would have believed it. There is no doubt. And that's been incredibly difficult for everybody. But we also know why we're doing it. Um, I mean, there will, there, there's a lot of discussion in Parliament. Obviously, we've got, we have a vote on this tomorrow. You know, we do need to obviously bring Parliament along with us. You know, everybody uh, represents their constituents. So, you know, we do need to have those debates. Lots of debates will happen. Um, but, you know... Should there be a vote, are... though? Should MPs have a vote? Should, should the House of Commons have the final say? on bringing in emergency rules like for instance a landlord being fined for playing music too loud and allowing people to dance in his pub um, no one saw that one coming wasn't announced now it's law well i think that you have to get the balance between government being able to react quickly which is why we all voted um for the coronavirus act six months ago that that comes up again tomorrow we do need to get the balance right and clearly you can't have everything going through parliament it would make no sense whatsoever it'd be too slow this is a global health pandemic you know cases are doubling every 10 days we really do need to take this situation seriously it's unfortunate because some of these rules you know they they're rules that none of us no government would ever want to introduce but they're there for a good reason they're there to protect the population and to try and get the r rate back under one so we can learn to live with the virus online on dab and on the talk radio app Talk Radio. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, talk radio. Professor Anthony Brooks, thank you very much for joining us. Um, can we talk, first of all, about uh, the rule of six and also the 10pm curfew? Um, as far as you're aware, is there any evidence for these <laughs> rules to be brought in? Has the government actually looked at any evidence? And does the evidence back oh. up that these will save lives? Oh, dear. I'm sorry I laughed at your question because, no, I mean, we all know there isn't. Um, but, but that's not surprising, is it? I mean, the government have got some very difficult decisions to make. Um, there's so many issues, so many viewpoints out there. And I suspect though, that those two examples you've just given probably were something of a compromise. I can imagine the decision makers being pulled in the two extreme directions. And we know what they are. Some people saying um, herd immunity won't ever come. For now, we have to lock down and suppress every single outbreak complete suppression strategy, even, you know, it's called zero COVID by some people, complete elimination. And the other extreme, well, we just relax, you know, this is a natural, it's a virus that just come out, it's happened millions of times in human history, it will take care of itself, herd immunity will solve it all, let's just relax and get over this. We've got it, it is endemic, and it always will be, let's live with it. Uh, those two extremes, those two polarised viewpoints, are really, you know, people are, get, are getting very adversarial about them, they're shouting about them, they're put, trying to get their way, and the government's stuck in the middle, trying to make decisions. So they're probably being told, don't shut the pubs at all you know, shut them completely. And maybe they just said, yeah. oh, we'll make a compromise. We'll shut them at 10 o'clock. And there, there is some evidence that that was what happened and that the, the government had planned to announce sort of quite a, a lot of he- uh, very heftier measures and then the likes of Rishi Sunak, the chances yeah. of fought against these things. And they had thought, well, we had to announce something, which is why, you know, Sage hadn't been yeah. looking at this at all. Um, but it's interesting, as you point out, those two extremes. Matthew Hancock, the health secretary yesterday in the House of Commons, taking this debate, which so many MPs did speak up, uh, particularly on the Tory benches, about, you know, the, the, whether or not these, these measures were... Pr- a proportionate response to the, the threat of the virus. Um, and he said, we, you know, some people say we should let it rip. And, and an MP sort of said, no, people aren't saying that. The most, the average person is not saying let yeah. it rip. The, most people are saying yeah. it's about having a response that's more proportionate. So, for instance, where Sweden was in terms of not having a formal lockdown, there are some rules. It's not, let's not pretend they're just, mm-hmm. you know, as they are. Mm-hmm. But shops still open, schools for under 16-year-olds still open, over 16 is a higher risk, not. Lots of people working from home. But having less 
less of a um, draconian government-imposed decision, more of people making their own personal decisions. The argument here seems to be people won't do the right thing. Too many people will flout the rules, whatever they are, so you need to have strict rules that affect everyone to make sure that, that you do have an effect. Is that a scientific way of approaching this? <laughs> well, obviously, science is only one part of the um, picture here. I mean, it, ultimately, these have, these have to be political decisions. Um, but, but in my mind, so, so look, I can, I can answer your questions as a scientist, where we can look at the data um, and, and be very clear that the data are not clear, they're open to interpretation, and they're being interpreted differently. And you could look at Sweden, an example you gave, and compare it to the UK, in which case you would argue strongly for herd immunity as an approach, or you can compare it to other Scandinavian countries and argue the opposite. So, you know, data are only data. It all comes down to interpretation, and that brings humans in, that brings in egos and politics and fear and all sorts of other, other things. So ultimately, science can only do so much on this. But, but in my own view, if I go beyond the science and give you my own view on this, um, a lot of what's happening in the first wave situation in this apparent second wave which i think of more as a secondary wave because it's not happening everywhere and we can talk more about that if you want and in the um university student situation i think what happens is people first are scared there's a panic there's hysteria and they overreact they get they come up with draconian solutions and concentrate only on that one tool the suppression tool we've actually got four tools in our toolbox to deal with this um epidemic uh, but but people just panic and concentrate on suppression and then that works for a while because everyone's scared. But then when many people say, hang on, this isn't such a problem. Um, so let's just take the first wave example. At the start, big panic. NHS won't cope. Everyone was scared. We all agreed suppression is the yeah. way forward. A few months later, things improved dramatically. And a lot of people started saying, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly at threat. I'm not very old. Uh, it isn't everywhere in the country. Uh, it's not exponential. You know, we're going we're gonna to live with this. And they wanted to get on with their life. Um, so there was this kind of the pendulum started to swing back. And that was fine, except now we've got this secondary wave. And so the same thing is happening again. Um, and the, the student situation is exactly the same. First few universities up in Scotland, Manchester, right, we lock people down, we, we uh, chain the, the fire doors shut, we have security guards outside, overreaction. And now we're getting kind of the pendulum swing, swinging back to a much more reasonable position. Um, and I've, I've seen lots of um, uh, statements from various universities now about how they're going to handle this. And things are becoming a lot more reasonable because we cannot carry on with sort of draconian, um, you know, just using the suppression tool as the only way forward. Because this is the thing. We, we are not going to, this awful phrase is, we need to defeat the virus. We're not going to defeat the virus. Mm, I mean, we no, may come up no. with a vaccine. But again, that's May. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that, 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 uh, that our, our scientists, with you know, enough money and enough effort goes in that, that we, can, uh, we can do this. But realistically, We've got another year where we're going to have to live yeah. with this virus, however we, we muddle through. Um, what do you make of things like you know this idea that we are in a second wave? You used the phrase secondary wave yeah. just then. Patrick yeah. Valance, yeah. the, uh, the chief scientific advisor, a Monday week ago, produced what he called an mm. example scenario. He said twice. I'm, I stress this every time. He said twice, not a prediction. But I think that was him preparing his way for the, uh, the uh, inquiry, I think, in a, in a year's time. Um, but he mm. gave it a scenario where we would have, in October, 50,000 new cases a day. 
again, let's leave aside the whole false positive rate and all mm-hmm. the issues there and who's mm-hmm. getting tested. Uh, but, but that would lead to, a month later, in November, 200 deaths a day. Now, we are, if you plot the latest results and even allowing for the weekend lag that you get in Monday's figures, mm-hmm. and that we are simply, for the last week, indeed on the day that he's announced this, we are not seeing exponential growth at all, are we? Right. So, I mean, you've been talking about that a, a lot on your programme, and so I don't need to, you know, make a big deal of, of pointing out that it is not exponentially. It was for a few weeks, yep. um, as always happens, but it's gone linear now. You know, one week it's flat, another week it's up a bit and so on. And we can look at places like Spain, like Belgium. We know what is going to happen in this second wave or this secondary wave. And that is it will rise. It will become linear. It will slow down. It will plateau. That whole process in all other countries that we're following in Europe takes about two months and then it will fall. So we know what's coming or, or we can make a damn pretty reliable prediction about what's coming. The deaths that will happen as a result of this second wave follow about a month behind that, but it's nothing like the amount of deaths we had in the first wave. Um, so we, we know, I, I feel pretty confident, let's say. It's only data, I'm only extrapolating and making my interpretations there, but I'm pretty sure that's the way things are going to unfold going forward. And so that starts to raise questions about why is this second wave or secondary wave less severe in the way it is. We're doing less lockdown perhaps now than in the first time anyway. So so that, you know, you, you it's very hard to adopt, in my view, to adopt the position that herd immunity doesn't exist. It's irrelevant here. So I'm, I mentioned earlier about four tools in the toolbox. Can I just bounce back to that then? Yeah, very briefly. Um, we are yeah. running out of time. Right. I do have to warn you. Apologies okay. for that. Okay. So the suppression approach is the one the government's following. Track and tra- that, that's the only one they're doing at the moment. They claim they're doing track and trace, but they're not doing it well enough to make a big difference. Um, just imposing fines is not the way to encourage people to engage with track and trace. If anything, it yeah. should be the opposite. It should be, yeah, right. Um, the vaccine approach, they can't do yet because we haven't got the vaccines. The fourth tool in the toolbox is this herd immunity approach. And if you look around the UK the, and, and look at the data, it really starts to look to me, at least, that where we had the big first wave, like in London, we're having minimal or no second wave. Yeah. So, so, and, and those data, can, you can only see that if you look at the data in terms of the percentage positives, not the counts of cases. It's a very misleading metric that not only this country, but all countries are using. They're just looking at the numbers of cases you detect. That depends on how much testing you do. We need to look at the percentage of tests that are positive. And that gives us a much better indication of what's going on. Conclusion is that this second wave shows, in my view, in my view, evidence of herd immunity. It has to be one of the four tools we use going forward. Online, on DAV and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Right, well, let's talk about even younger people, the children. The Children's Commissioner for England, Anne Longfield, has published a major report calling on the government to establish a comprehensive recovery package for children, many of whom, she says, have suffered disproportionately as a result of the coronavirus crisis. Delighted to welcome Anne Longfield to the show right now. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. You've been speaking out for a very long time about the concerns about the pandemic and uh, how children have suffered, uh, not just in terms of their education, which we know has lifelong effects on children's chances of doing well in life, indeed their health, even indeed how long they live, um, but also just in terms of their mental health as well as their physical health and uh, and just generally just stealing their childhood away from them. What do you, what are you what point are you making in your report about the suffering disproportionately? What specifically are you concerned about? Well, as you say, there's been um, a really heavy price that kids have paid over this pandemic. They, of course, 
thankfully haven't been a major health risk, but they have had a heavy burden. The time out of school, six months, they had to watch adults go into shops and pubs, reopen and restaurants halfway through that process, let's remember. Um, the isolation they felt and the anxiety about schoolwork, but also about their friends and their own identity, that sense that actually they don't know what, where the world will take them going forward. And of course, these are kids who have really fragile home environments. So this is something which has been a, a huge shock to children. Uh, they haven't been at the forefront of decisions often over this period of time, but actually back in school now, there's an opportunity to start to rebuild that confidence and put in place a kind of recovery package that not only will help them catch up, but actually get ahead, especially those kids who will need every piece of resilience they can to look, to be able to cope with what's coming down the track. Well, that's it. I mean, I think some children have, have actually done quite well. And I think a lot of people have been quite surprised, but a lot of kids who suddenly got to spend some time with mum and dad without, you know, the, the, everyone on their phones for a change, actually did us some good. I have to say, I... I've got to be honest with you, I'm, I'm a terrible, terrible uh, thing to admit to. I actually secretly loved getting an extra few months with my daughter in teenage years as she flies away. But we know a lot of people in homes where things are not good, family relationships are, good, are bad, domestic abuse, poverty, um, and mental health problems, uh, abuse of alcohol or, or drugs and the like. The, those children, you've, you've estimated there were some 2.2 million children who were living in homes like that even before the crisis struck. That's right. The, the That's things right. have gone even more downhill for them since. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And of course, it's not all doom and gloom for those kids that actually got a slice of life where they could be with their parents for some time and they had, you know, plenty of space at home and support. That was great. But there is a huge number of children who didn't. Two million children in the situation of fragile home environments. Two million children that probably didn't learn very much during this period. And I think there's two things now. One is knowing this and the pandemic really has shone a light on these inequalities. Knowing this actually get to the root causes of it look at what's creating these inequalities help children at school but yes get the help to families so that you know when problems develop they don't end up as crises and really being able to help children in terms of their mental health i would like to see a mental health counselor in every school that's really achievable but someone will need to make it happen and it costs money and we know that it's like we're choice between a mental health counsellor and, and a maths teacher i've got to be honest with you i'm choosing the maths teacher they haven't got money for both however can we talk about the mental health issue because i i worry we've gone from a situation where people didn't talk about mental health at all adults or children and it was such a taboo and, and people you know we know people were suffering with depression uh, people attempting or committing suicide um without anyone having a clue because people thought you couldn't talk about it i worry that now we we sometimes talk about it too much and we sort of almost describe um, a mental health problem to anyone who says, oh, I'm having a really miserable day today. Yes. Well, my daughter, you know, during lockdown, even though things were actually really good for us, mum and dad still got jobs, got a nice home, she was having lessons every day, we've got the gadgets so she can talk to her friends, we're going out for walks, doing everything we could to do things right. Um, and she would have a bad day, as I think we all did. And again, a normal, healthy mental response to the, to the, to the stress. Um, but we were able to sort of say, look, yeah, this is a normal feeling. Are we not at risk of a catastrophizing and, and turning everything into a mental health problem when children have had completely normal, predictable, co correct reactions to a stressful situation? So I'm the last one to want to medicalize anything because, you know, that doesn't do children any good at all when there's anxieties when there's um, mild depressions and the like or when there's just nervousness because actually growing up can be you know 
a tough time. But actually, the whole point about having someone in school is that you don't medicalise it. And actually, school shouldn't pay for this. This has to be something that the health, you in a way, you're bringing the health professionals to school rather than getting schools to do something else. And actually, what what you've got there is individuals that actually children can get to know, trust, drop in, actually ask for advice at the early stages. So it's just someone really they can rely on. And, you know, I think that, of course, children are resilient and life changes over time with different stresses and strains. But look what we've got now. Aside from the pandemic, you've got online 24-7. You've got it's kind of global aspiration of what might be. Actually, there's a, a really narrowing prism of what success looks like for a child. And that's something which I think most need a bit of help with coping. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to today's Julia Hartley Brewer coronavirus update. Please don't forget to like, comment and most importantly, subscribe. And you can catch me live on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 till 10. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.